Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. Welcome back to Political R&D. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, and I have two guests with me today, both of them associate professors in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor Toome. Welcome, Trevor. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Blake Schaefer. Hello. Thanks for having me, too. So, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about economics today. <laughs> no shortage of recent developments, that's for sure. No. I, I fear that people might have just hung up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, I told them too much too soon. <laughs> the, you're right, there is no shortage. And before I actually even get into that part, is it too soon to start talking about recovery? No, I don't think it's too soon to start talking about it in that... Uh, planning for how recovery is going to take place, laying out some milestones in the future that governments will be using to think about how it starts to ease up on the lockdown is is very important, not just to help alleviate the uncertainty, which for us as individuals, I think, or at least me personally, can be stressful. Um, so ensuring that people know that there's uh, a plan, if you will, but also for businesses. So alleviating uncertainty around how things move forward from here can have positive implications for um, business investment and the speed of the overall recovery. So I think planning, but being, of course, flexible and responding to developments and recommendations from the public health authorities um, is is very important. Without, without kind of pulling a Donald Trump and saying that we're going to ease up next week or two weeks from now and it'll be great. But planning, doing scenario analyses, laying out what are the important milestones, how we're going to respond to different develop- developments in the future. I think all that can be quite a, a positive thing for governments to do right now. And Blake, what do you think? Is it, uh, is it helpful when we start talking about this now to start fleshing out some of the issues that that governments might face when we're talking about moving into a recovery. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really important conversation and it's critically important that it's it's a thoughtful conversation and it's guided by by science and the public health officials. Um, you know, I I don't mean to rag on the US too much, but I think it'll be inevitable <laughs> in this conversation. But if you look at the seven member panel that they put forth in terms of guiding the reopening of the economy, with all due respect to, to some folks there, that, that is clearly not the type of panel you want to, to be guiding. We need public health experts to really be telling us um, when we're ready, what are the metrics we should be looking at when we're ready. Um, but I would echo what, what Trevor said, giving people a sense of the timeline and giving businesses a sense of the timeline, just resolving that uncertainty, even if it is a long time. Just having more clarity around that allows people to plan, you know, do, do I support my workers through this or do I need to do furloughs? Um, how long can I expect? All of that is, is helpful. So that transparency in the conversation is helpful. I think Canada has done a pretty good job to date not politicizing the reopening, if you call it, conversation. Um, I, I fear that it could go in a different direction, but I think for now, 
um, it, it, we are really deferring uh, quite a bit to public health experts, and, and that's really important in my view. Mm -hmm. Okay. As I had mentioned when, when I invited both of you at the same time, was your article about uh, the choices and necessities of government spending. You know, we got these short-term problems, which are, I only identified three, uh, and you know, good old disclaimer, I am not an economist. So the short-term issues that we have, job losses, uh, as well as specifically for Alberta, the oil crash, but also the lockdown, uh, the, the health orders that are going out right now that are kind of keeping things, uh, do we want to say plateaued or just down? Well, yeah, who I wants guess to go first? A, a lot to unpack there, so I won't uh, kind of speculate or comment on how the the lockdown measures affect the case curve. You know how effective they've been in, in flattening it, but economically, uh, we got our first taste of what this might mean last week when Statistics Canada released the very first jobs report that covered some of this um, lo lockdown period in time. So just at the beginning there in the middle of March, they did their labor force survey where they are asking uh, Canadians what their employment situation is, how many hours worked, what, what do they earn and so on. And it, it showed some really, uh, I guess, troubling numbers, not wholly unexpected, but about a million jobs lost in March Canada wide relative to February and over 2 million people seeing uh, most or all of their hours worked eliminated. And right. so that, that's a massive drop in employment, a larger drop in employment month over month than we've ever seen in recorded history, and roughly twice as bad as the worst monthly drop observed in the Great Depression. So it's, a, it's hard to overstate how sharp of a contraction it was. But we do have to keep in mind that that contraction was itself a choice, a public health measure to prevent the spread of the disease. And it's to ensure that later on down the road, an uncontrolled spread of that disease didn't lead to catastrophic health and economic uh, consequences later on. So it's short-term pain, but potentially the optimal thing to do in the face of what might have been had we left this to spread in an uncontrolled way. Uh, from Alberta's perspective, there was um, almost 120,000 uh, jobs lost there in March. And I think we should get ready for a couple of weeks from now when we learn about how the April numbers shake out, that it, it's going to be even larger uh, declines here and nationally. And then Alberta, so you mentioned the oil price drop. That's clearly important for for us in terms of government finances and in terms of an important sector in Alberta, activity in oil and gas. And that's a, a medium and longer term challenge that we face that some other provinces, certainly the larger provinces, don't face. And so we might see a deeper contraction in economic activity in Alberta and one that is longer lasting because it does um, activity here depends on what that future price of oil is going to be and i think we saw some taste of that um, this morning from indeed canada they kind of post some of their data on job vacancy postings uh, by firms. and we've seen a, a drop in the number of job vacancies in their i guess most recent data and i'm forgetting 
what specific date, but it was just out this morning, a 50% drop in the number of open jobs being posted in Alberta. And that's a larger drop than any other province. Okay. And Blake, what are you seeing with like the, what's often called that double whammy that, that is hitting Alberta? I mean, we were already, we were already suffering from uh, the lower oil prices, the lack of oil and gas investment, even though oil companies themselves were actually doing well because they were only producing. So they had managed to really bring down their uh, operational costs, but we were already, we already had that problem before uh, the additional job losses caused by the lockdown. Yeah, you know, that's an important thing to note when we talk about the consequences here in, in Canada, that Alberta does have this double whammy. I think I was doing interviews in the week preceding, you know, when, when COVID kind of took over everything on the news um, about what we were forecasting to be a dramatic change in the deficit in Alberta because of the fall off in oil prices, which really had started to precede it. I mean, the price war mm-hmm. started it and then the demand dropped a couple of, at the same time. Um, but I would say something on, on jobs. So uh, apart from the fact that going forward, job prospects do look uh, grim as, as the Indeed data shows in terms of vacancies. To date, that hasn't been where the bulk of the job losses are. I'm not, I'm not suggesting there hasn't been. Uh, there certainly mm. has. But really, you know, those big headline numbers, the one million Canadian, this is really service sector by and large that's bearing the brunt of this. This is restaurants, tourism, airlines, etc. Um, that's where the bulk of these immediate job losses in terms of the lockdown are mm-hmm. occurring. As we look forward, though, and especially as we reopen the economy and those jobs start to trickle back, there there is a challenge going forward uh, in terms of the oil and gas sector. So that's a medium to long-term discussion. The the piece that you mentioned, it was actually a Globe and Mail piece. Yeah, Trevor and I, were we were really kind of making a slightly narrow point in, in that article, which was the importance of being honest about choices that are being made mm-hmm. and the original decision to to cut funding to K-12 education, which induced these layoffs of 20,000 people, uh, seemed to be justified based on this, this hint that we were facing a liquidity crisis. Basically, the government was broke, couldn't borrow money. Uh, these were, these were um, uh, signs coming out of uh, finance ministry spokespeople. And that just isn't true. I mean, we are in a bad short run situation and even you know, looking out a bit further, the deficit is going to be the biggest on record, but we have tremendous capacity to borrow. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not always something people want to hear, but it's something important to know that deciding to cut that spending had nothing to do with diverting that money to COVID response. The money is available for COVID response. It had to do with how much debt do we want to incur during this. Right. Um, and so that's a choice. And um, we don't really actually opine in the article on the merits of that choice. I have my personal opinions. You might, (laughs) Trevor might, they they might differ. We can get into that if you want, but that wasn't the purpose of that article. It was simply highlighting that this is a choice. Um, Yeah, we can can talk a little bit about what short-term responses by government, uh, what we view ought to be, but that becomes a bit of a normative question. There's different views on what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I'll just uh, layer on top of that a little bit that uh, Alberta is not constrained in its ability to access cash and borrow if it chooses to, as Blake noted, and 
And that's not the case in all provinces. Newfoundland, uh, I think a few weeks ago, had a, a lot of trouble accessing credit markets and is now effectively borrowing through the Bank of Canada, which is a situation that's uh, going to need to be resolved by um, policy changes through the federal government. But th they're constrained in a way that we're not. Uh, so we do need to keep in mind that Alberta's relative to other provinces in a position where we we do have runway runway to make thoughtful choices and aren't really being forced to make kind of short-term knee-jerk reactions because of financing constraints okay and yeah because that was something that i was i was thinking of uh well while blake was saying about this being a choice i mean as soon as as soon as we started moving into some lockdown situations one of the things that he said at the time is you know we will spare no expense we have we have access to money that will get us through at least as far as healthcare goes and and emergency funding that had come out things like that so the the narrative had changed very quickly because we had been hearing for a year a little more than no not quite a year wow um so not quite a year we'd been hearing Alberta is broke. So that narrative changed very quickly when he wanted to assure everyone that, no, we will have money available to deal with this health crisis. Yeah, I mean, in general, political spin is not uh, the most informative um, <laughs> language, right? So when previously uh, leaders would say that Alberta's broke, all they meant was that we ought to prioritize lowering the deficit more than the former government did. Um, right. And that's that's fair enough. And reasonable people can disagree over what their fiscal priorities are. But there's no sense in which Alberta's broke right. uh, just because we have a deficit and just because debt is, is rising. That may... Um, be a concern for some. It certainly comes like with like all policy choices comes with trade-offs and it comes with pros and cons to consider. But yeah, it's in general not right to think about governments in terms of being broke or not. Um, that's that's a very rare situation that governments actually get to the point of um, defaulting, right? Here we are making choices around tax rates and spending levels and we should talk about it, I think, weighing those pros and cons of those specific choices. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the situation that we're in right now. But of course, a lot of those choices also come into play when we're when we're starting to talk about recovery, because we're spending between either you can you can say it's it's healthcare or emergency funding or EI or or whatever choices that the governments are making. How does that look? Because to me, it's it's not even just midterm recovery. I mean, I think that this is something that will take a while. Uh, but I'm also looking at this long term that's going to be affected from right now. And I'm not sure if the two are totally separate or not. But uh, one of the things that I had seen, you know, you can take out from your RRSPs right now and things. And I started, as soon as I saw that, I thought, what happens when 40-year-olds cash in their RRSPs to get through this time? What happens in 20 to 25 years when they're looking at retirement? I think, I think you're, you're 
you know, making a really important point. The, the short-term decisions we're making, the medium-term decisions, are going to have long-run implications. Um, not just at the household level, well, you know, we should definitely get into that, but Trevor and I have been looking at the, the growth of the balance sheet of the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve. They're the ones buying up distressed assets, keeping liquidity, like Trevor said, direct loans effectively to provinces, which is new to us um, at this point. So they're building on quite a debt load uh, or an asset load at this point in time. And, and that that has to be to returned over time. The, the flip side to that is where interest rates are right now, make that really supportable. Um, there's fears, of course, as to what could happen in terms of inflation, because you are pumping all this money. In terms of market expectations, because there's lots of assets you can purchase right now that basically give you a hedge on inflation, which are a way to sort of say, what does the market think inflation looks like? It's well under 2%, sort of the 1% level, even out 10 years. Okay. I've been thinking about this a little bit more recently, and Trevor and I are, are working on a piece that is floating it <laughs> off the ground. But one of the things, one of the consequences of this crisis in terms of breaking up connections and reconnecting them later is there is a lot of clamor towards what I'll call maybe nationalizing, uh, not nationalizing, pardon me, protectionism, <laughs> not nationalizing. Um, sort of looking inward and not relying on sort of supply chains or, or trade, especially for these critical equipment, uh, you know, like we're seeing in healthcare. So some of these things in a, from a security perspective, you know, like that's understandable. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that more trade gets a protectionist bent on it, so we're, we're not willing to manufacture T-shirts out, out of the country, you know, then we will start to see inflation. Uh, if we're really pushing this project protectionist agenda, and I'm seeing more and more, at least political conversation about that, and even sort of casual conversation with friends, a lot of them are sort of having a bit of a pushback moment on globalization. And and, and if that's the case, I think the inflation story is going to change. Um, it, it naturally will, because it does cost more. That's the benefit of trade. Um, so, so that's one of the concerns about borrowing for the future is if inflation um, moves. Right. And so to to expand on that, because I mean, I think that's something that a number of people have considered with this disruption in supply chains. A lot of people have looked at it, I think, and said, why are why do we not already do this here? Is, is that something that can actually help our economy uh, recover a little faster is if we if we start, and I'm not talking about making everything here, but if we were to start, um, in a way, sort of diversifying some of the economy as as we will end up doing during this time, but if we were to continue with that on a small, at least a small scale, where some of these things were always made here. Yeah, I mean, this speaks to perhaps one of the oldest questions in all of economics, and that is what. <laughs> What what are the gains from trade? What are the the sources of the wealth of nations? To go back to Adam Smith, who thought about who thought about this, and consistently, uh, we find that there are gains in terms of higher productivity and higher real incomes, higher standards of living and purchasing power comes from economies specializing in the activities that they're relatively good at doing. And where you allocate your 
labor force, where you allocate your investment and your machinery and equipment, that matters. And if you try and do um, everything or, or more things domestically, then you're foregoing the opportunity to focus on what you're particularly good at and then importing from someone else who has kind of lower, what we say, lower opportunity costs of producing those other goods that you do not. Um, so globalization, uh, distributing production across locations, it makes sense for economies. And intuitively, it also makes sense for individuals. We specialize in things that we are particularly good at and then import from other individuals the things that we don't produce for ourselves. And that improves our own standards of living. Although what we're seeing right now is that it doesn't come without uh, any, any trade-off, right? There is a risk there in that when supply chains are so long and distributed and when businesses are, are lean and hold very few or very low levels of inventory, then there is a risk there. Um, and a risk that I think many companies will be thinking about changing how they operate across uh, national borders and maybe will rightly change how governments think about producing particular products uh, like health care, uh, PPE or devices, things that you might in unexpected uh, states of the world need in, in very short order. And so you want to maintain strategic stockpiles of, of such things, but these are really the exceptions, not the rule. And I don't think we ought to generalize from um, certain health products to overall economy-wide policies that really pulls back on globalization and trade. Um, so I, I do worry about that. Uh, 85 countries right now, as of this morning, have export restrictions, uh, not just on health products and devices, but increasingly on things like food. Uh, so we may see, especially in Canada, where we do import food kind of unavoidably because of the nature of our, our climate and the smaller range of products that we can produce relative to other countries. But we're going to see, I think very soon, uh, food costs rising in a way that's noticeable. Um, and so that's a way to, I guess, I guess that's, that's a reminder for us that trade does increase our individual standards of living and purchasing power by allowing us to access lower priced um, products produced elsewhere. Yeah, I think this is this is an important, you know, I, in my view, it's a it's a concerning slippery slope that could be the re, the response to this crisis. I, I fully agree with with Trevor that when we think about gains from trade and and uh, comparative advantage, we do need. It's, this is a good reminder that we need to incorporate risk into that equation. So for some things, we can we have clear substitutes. There's not a problem if that supply chain gets disrupted. Uh, for N95 masks in a pandemic, well, we're learning that no, we really, that risk is very high. So these uh, low probability, high impact events, those are the ones where from a security perspective, we need to think more carefully about whether the static gains from trade outweigh the risk we're exposing ourselves to. The concern I have, I think, shared with Trevor is that that, that logic gets extended broadly to the manufacturing sector or other sectors. So, you know, the classic example that we would typically use in economics is but Alberta could have a thriving banana industry if we wanted. <laughs> Government could put money into the banana sector. There would be jobs. There'd be right. spinoff jobs, induced jobs, all of that. Um, 
But we have to remember that all of the resources that we're putting into that, so where the government could put that money, where the labor could go, because eventually you'd run out of labor, uh, those have op other opportunities. And uh, I've lived here long enough to realize the banana growing is not going to be very productive. Um, <laughs> it, so, you know, th that's obviously an extreme <laughs> example, but there's going to be certain sectors that we're going to try to convince ourselves we should be world leaders or we should do this ourselves. And um, in some cases, there could be an argument for it, you, you know, but but in we have to be cautious about that. In many cases, there really isn't. And uh, we're just kind of shoving money when, and, and not thinking about the opportunity cost of those resources. Right. Now, I, I think some of the broader takeaways that should guide how we approach policy uh, as a consequence of, of COVID-19 are how we think about risk and prepare for risk and, and think longer term as governments. I don't think we tend to uh, come at policymaking with that long run perspective in general, and I'm not sure we do a good job um, preparing for risk. I think that's certainly true in Alberta, given how uh, exposed our government is to oil price movements and uh, an unwillingness to think about policies to mitigate uh, those risks. So I think we should prioritize more policies that provide effective insurance to individuals, like we are seeing right now the great need for income support programs to bridge people through this crisis. And it, it kind of revealed that the social safety net that we have had some, some big holes in it. And so maybe rethinking how we approach those kind of policies, maybe this will be an event that leads to more comprehensive reform to EI programs and so on. But it also reveals, I hope, that, that government finances are also exposed to risk in a way that we can, if we choose, um, not be as exposed going forward. So I think there are some some broader takeaways here from this event that's revealing uh, the tail risk that we always faced, uh, but now we're actually seeing. Yeah, right. you can even speak to one of the decisions made, and we referenced it in that article, was the, the gov Alberta government's decision to invest in uh, Keystone Excel, take it a, a short-term equity stake and a, a much larger uh, loan guarantee to move that project forward. And, you know, there, I think there would be differing views on that one again. So, you know, Kenny, I think he made the point he's looking beyond the near term and, and investing in the future. And, and to some sense, that's true. You're creating infrastructure, which is going to add value to the future. But along those risk dimensions, we aren't doing anything for risk. We're, in, a, in effect, doubling down on the industry that, fair enough, has provided most of, you know, large share of the wealth for Alberta uh, in the past. Um, and is not going away anytime soon, um, but we are simply increasing our exposure to that. And it's you're also not getting the argument of diversifying your markets, as it's you know it's a pipeline leading to our main market currently. So if we think about the diversification question in terms of not just the standard diversifying the economy, but diversifying risk and lessening risk, it's not doing much in that regard. So that that's something that I think. When we think about responses to this crisis and just even this crisis aside, there's these short-term needs, which would be the income supports we're talking about. Uh, there'll be medium-term, which is more about stimulus and restarting the economy. Um, and then the longer run, which is, you know, 
preparing for the future, which governments not, aren't always great at, but nor is the private sector, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a challenging conversation. Um, but I think that's, I th I'm hopeful that when we think about the medium term response and stimulus and where do we restart this economy, that we do try to take into account the fact that we are in a transition. We always are in transitions, but mm -hmm. this one is particularly um, nerve wracking for Alberta because the, the writing on the wall of this transition in, a, in the longer run, you know, 50 years hence, is really not great for the current status quo. And right. there'll be arguments around 50 years, 10 years, five years. <laughs> um, but it, it would be prudent to diversify that risk, in my view. Right. It, it seems to me that, and I, I realize that we, I did talk about this on another podcast where we were talking about how there have been other pandemics in my lifetime, but uh, none that really shut everything down. Uh, so the last one, it looks like this is a hundred year thing that really shut everything down for a hundred years. Was Spanish flu the last time that this happened? Now, granted, things look different then, but that was something that, that did shut things down in a way that other things in my lifetime really haven't. Yeah, I mean, we're also a, a more interconnected world. I mean, just given the nature of our ability to move you know, through airlines and, and ship uh, so we can get from one side of the world to the other within a day, I guess, depending on what connections you can you manage, <laughs> manage to get. Uh, and then telecommunications and supply chains and just the nature of our lives is so different that I think the 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 great shutdown that we're going through right now is kind of very different than responses to prior pandemics. And now this, so is this something that, I mean, obviously governments need to prepare for a possibility like this, but it also doesn't seem, and now <laughs> that could be very wrong because like you said, things have changed over the last 50, 60 years that, or longer, I'm, yeah, uh, that that make our lives much different now than than they were before. So is this something that governments need to prepare for uh, more often, I'm wondering, with with this change? Or, or is it something that that they just put together? Uh, what was what was it that came out? federally there was a 2013 or a 2016 report that was talking about what a pandemic response should look like does that sound familiar it was i think as economists we got to be weary leery of trying to step on epidemiologists toes that's that's been fodder recently so yeah I, I, i'd hasten to get in there but dan gardner wrote a nice piece in the globe a couple days ago that's about great. um being prepared for these uh, high impact yet low probability events, which is exactly what, what yeah. it is, and and it, it it is a different thing to to plan for because you know dealing with these we would call them fat you know fat tails sort of distant, um, un, unlikely to occur, but if they do occur, it's going to be really damaging. It's a, it's a very hard thing for people to do. I mean, if you can relate it to the climate change story in, in a sense, and I think a lot of people are relating preparedness here um, to that, where it, it's 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 distant, it's unknown, uh, a lot of the damages as well as the timing are unknown. So preparing for that 
Um, it's a challenging promotion, especially when it costs you up front. I, I think right. the thing on pandemic preparedness is that um, it, it, it may, it's not like preparing for climate change or mitigating for climate change. Stockpiling masks, uh, having you know, protection, screening protections on trade and movement, that can be done in a, you know, much cheaper than changing our economy to prepare for climate change. Right. So I think I, 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 clearly there's going to be a movement to prepare. The, the question is how long will that last for? Memories are short. Um, I remember hearing an exit interview of Obama basically after um, he left office or maybe shortly after or shortly before. And they asked him, what, what were you most concerned about during your, your eight years? Was it you know, nuclear war? other things you said pandemics because oh. these were things largely out of their control right. and so i i guess hopefully with this thing gives us more reason to take it more seriously and dealing with pandemics though requires global coordination um, which we've seen we've seen a bit but you know at the same time there's a lot of accusations flying around the world about there was are. China <laughs> truthful? To what degree were they truthful? Um, not just them, though. I think there's questions being lauded at lots of folks. But you, you do need effectively like early warning signals uh, right. when you have these new viruses, just like we have for tsunamis. <laughs> you know, it's coming. Uh, yeah. We, we lost a lot of time. We could have done a lot of things um, if we had perhaps taken it more seriously in the two months or three months between China's releases and when Canada and the rest of the world really uh, got going in, in earnest. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, there's just going to be a strong case for more preparedness. Absolutely. Yeah, just to, to, to layer on that, I, I agree 100% um, that we should defer to public health experts in terms of how uh, right. to prepare and how to respond. But what we're, what we're seeing is that the, that they're are enormous costs with how we've approached this uh, and that there's almost surely uh, a way to have done it at, at lower costs. Of course, hindsight is 2020, but what we're, what we're seeing now with the shutdown is because there, there weren't other ways of responding that could have allowed economic activity to continue. So the IMF just this morning updated their global growth projections and it's about uh, nearly six and a half percent below uh, where it was, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in dollar terms, that's globally about six trillion dollars. Uh, and so the the gains to better preparing are enormous. Right. And if that means that governments need to ramp up their spending in different areas of healthcare dramatically or in testing infrastructure, it's worth it. It's hard for it to not be worth it if you're avoiding this scale of loss, even if it's only every few decades. Right. Uh, and so I think we ought to keep that in mind that if the public health experts make a recommendation that costs a couple billion, that's a steal and we should fund them. Yes. And that's really what I was that's really what I was thinking when I was asking is that economic argument because exactly like preparedness, this is something that I think we've seen in, in so many different areas that when we're preparing for, you know, like baby boomer retirement, right? We knew that was going to cost. <laughs> there was an economic uh, 
uh, cost to what happened then with healthcare and everything else. So it's, to me, it is like, of course, it, there's a there's a health, um, there's a health side of this, but that economic cost that comes with being prepared, uh, that the cost of being prepared is actually less, even though it's upfront, even though it's a an if, you know, or when this happens years, a, years, years in the future, it's still better if we start preparing now than if we try and catch up later. 100%. And, and the, the demographic change and the health costs from an aging population is, I think, a great example. And it's this very uh, slow moving, pretty yeah. easy to predict um, pressure that we're going to be facing yeah. that we've started facing right now. Like you, you can see it in the data in a really big way starting around 2010. It's going to be with us for some time to come. And and th there's not a lot of preparedness taking place in Alberta, um, but not just Alberta. In, in most provinces, these health cost pressures that the, all the jurisdictions face are immense, and, and no one has quite tackled them in a way that's um, reflective of the scale of the challenge, even though it's something that we know it's coming. It's very easy yeah. to quantify. There's, a, there's little uncertainty. Uh, around <laughs> the scale of that challenge. And I guess it speaks to that earlier, do a good job planning. Uh, and, but I guess at the end of the day, that's also up to what voters are prioritizing when they're evaluating candidates. And I hope that we start evaluating those who lay out thoughtful, detailed, um, evidence-based vision and proposal for for the future, rather than just jumping from one uh, partisan political fight to the next. In in economics or elsewhere, we have a term called discount rates, which is basically how do you value the future? And yeah. what I've come to realize is through various different reasons, um, on mass, it seems like we have as a society really high discount rates, as in we discount the we discount future benefits quite greatly. Yeah. So to the extent we have to put up costs in the front uh, or upfront. Uh, to avoid costs or get benefits in the future, it, it, there's a real unwillingness to do that. And I think in part, and now we're treading on a different field toes, but <laughs> political scientists might suggest that, it, you know, our short election cycles really feed into that. If you're making investments that have costs and the benefits aren't felt for generations, um, that's a really good thing. That's what we want leaders to do. But if you need to be elected in four years time, which means your campaign needs to ramp up in about two years time, yeah. you're less likely to do that. And uh, if you're in opposition, you might put a lot more emphasis on the cost, the upfront costs and, and kind of discount the benefits. And, you know, the healthcare cost thing is more obvious because it's, it's less uncertain, but this is clearly the trap we get into with climate change, where there is a lot of uncertainty around the timing and the magnitude and it's getting clearer and clearer, but it's very easy for people to, increase that discount rate because they can emphasize the uncertainty of the cost avoidance in the future. So these, these societal high discount rates is a, is a real problem for planning for the future. And hey, as a last question, it's sort of unrelated, but my education was in sociology. So I took a lot of the, you know, um, a lot of the society type I don't know. I did do this, though. Um, <laughs> but 
we looked, I mean, we, we did a lot of the comparisons, or at least in, in one or two classes, where we looked at um, societies that value more community than individualism. So looking at both of those, is that something that, that you think also kind of allows us to have that higher discount rate? Yeah, well, that's a great, great question. A really interesting area of study. Um, there's, there's games that happen in economics, uh, ultimatum and dictator games, where you basically share a pool of money. And we see in different societies, the willingness to share is very different. Um, yeah. and, and so I think looking at that and looking at the different global responses um, will be very informative on that front. I mean, what we're all doing here is making some sacrifices. I mean, it's people have brought up the point. It's not the same sacrifices people were asked to do in World War II. We're being asked to stay at home. Um, for for many, though, clearly, you know, giving up income uh, to the point where the questioning, you know, can I can I afford this? And so the government's rushing to support those, which is absolutely critical. But um, we're all making a sacrifice during this time period for the greater good, you know, to protect the most vulnerable. Aww. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's, I think we're going to see as the clamor to reopen um, that debate starts. And you're already seeing it in the U.S. where there's, I saw kind of a dystopian vision of districts <laughs> in the U.S. where, where yeah. the Western coalition and a Northeast state coalition who have said, we're not reopening. And then you have the right up the middle saying we are reopening there you might start to see people making those decisions around do we do this collective good thing or do you know am i just getting too frustrated that i'm being stuck indoors and i i'm willing to take that risk and potentially impose costs on others uh, by getting out there so it'll be very interesting to watch different responses and that might get to your your point about different societies views on collectivism mm -hmm. and i do think as well that like i'm watching this happening being part of this um i'm i am really excited for not just when it's over because you know maybe life can go back a little bit but also because that's when we're going to start the research that's when we're going to start the data collection that's when we're going to start really analyzing who did what and what those effects those short-term effects are and yeah Okay. Yeah, I, I share that excitement. I mean, data right. takes time and good data, good data takes even longer. And we're going to see for, for years, decades to come, some really phenomenal research in you know, all areas from economics and sociology and poli-sci and health. And we're going to learn a lot uh, around what worked and what didn't. And that'll be really interesting to see for sure. Yeah. Well, we, we can possibly leave it there for all the geeks to just kind of go, ha. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> we started out with heavy topics, but boy, did we end on a good note. <laughs> I mean, on that point, let me add one more, <laughs> one more comment that, uh, that Canada, what we're seeing is we can do a better job with data, with timely data yeah. collection um, and releases. We're seeing a lot more information around what the implications of the, the great lockdown is in the United States that we're not seeing in Canada just because Statistics Canada doesn't do it. Um, so it's we may see that there's changes in terms of how data collection is funded and prioritized that can lead to uh, benefits long after this current crisis. It's also exciting. <laughs>
Well, thank you both very much for joining me. Um, I learned a lot, as always. Oh, thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Thank you.